Hi, good morning. Serious. Yeah, no, I just, if that's how it's going to be today, that's how it's going to be. It's just good to know that now, okay? Good morning. There we go. Uh, my name's Lucas. I'm uh, one of the pastors here on staff at Bayview Glen. We're thrilled that you're here th- with us this morning. Welcome. Uh, glad you're with us. We, we have a lot to cover today, and so we're just going to hop right into it. John chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. We've been basing our entire series called The Trellis and the Vine on uh, these two verses. Do you have it memorized yet, by the way? John chapter 15, 1 and 2. Jesus says this, I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that bears fruit, he prunes, takes away from the ground. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. We've been doing this every week for the last seven weeks. We're going to do it again. Repeat these deep abiding spiritual truths after me with gusto, please, this morning. I am the vine dresser. No, you're not the vine dresser. You fell for it. You fell for it. I am a branch. My job is to bear fruit. Jesus is the vine. He gives me life. Come on, keep that gusto going. My father is the vine dresser. He prunes me so that I bear fruit. God, would you continue to teach us even this day about building for ourselves a spiritual trellis, constructing for ourselves a, a support system, of spiritual practices and habits and rhythms and a kind of a rule of life that allows us as branches to abide in you and to bear the fruit that we're commanded to in John chapter 15. Thank you, Jesus, for your presence with us by your Holy Spirit today. And we invite you to speak in Christ's name, the people of God said. Uh, Many of you know that I typically begin sermons with kind of a review of where we've been over the last couple of weeks. We don't have time to do that today. Uh, If you want a really great summary of what we've been talking about in this series, go back and listen to the first 10 minutes of Dave's sermon from last week. He did an absolutely fantastic job kind of summarizing what we've been talking about through the entire series. And if if you're thinking, wow, I don't even want a summary. I want to listen to all the sermons. They are all available online at bayviewglenn.org, available on the app. So go back and listen to those things. What what I want to do today uh, is not even offer you a new trellis fact. We promised a new trellis fact every week, but I just kind of pulled, you know, kind of the, you know, executive order this week and called an audible and said, we're not even going to offer a new trellis fact because the trellis fact that Dave uh, suggested or posited to us last week, I think is so, so critical for understanding the nature, purpose, and goal of spiritual life. And so we're just going to revisit that trellis fact from last week and spend some time unpacking it. Remember, last week as Dave preached, he started this journey that he took us on with a question, and the question was this, who is the fruit for? Who is the fruit for? If I am a fruit-bearing branch, if I'm a branch and my job is to bear the fruit of godliness in my life, then for whom was that fruit intended? Who's it for? I cannot overstate the the critical nature of this question. This is so significant for understanding spiritual life, who we are, what it is that we do, and why we engage in spiritual habits like Bible reading and fasting and so on and so forth. So we're going to spend a little bit of time just kind of going back and underscoring what Dave uh, brought to bear last week. Now, some, some folks might say, well, the fruit of godliness in my life is for God. 
That's, that's, it's for God. So I, I, I bear the fruit of godliness for God because God said so. And to those people who answer this question that way, I would just simply say to you with, with all the grace and gentleness that, that I can muster, you, you understand it's a gospel of works, right? It's a gospel of works. That's not a gospel of grace. You're trying to impress God with fruit in your life. But he's already really impressed with you. You get that? Like your picture's on his fridge. He thinks of you all the time. He sees you as an adopted son or daughter through the lens of his son, Jesus Christ. You cannot impress him. The fruit is not for him. And some people might say, that, okay, the fruit is, is for me. The fruit of godliness in my life is for me because I want to be a better person. I want to be, you know, kind and gentle and good to people. And, and, and so I abide in the vine as a fruit-bearing branch such that I bear fruit. And I would say to those people, uh, you know, godly behavior makes you a heck of a lot more fun to be around. Yeah. Yeah, I'll tell you that. But godly behavior ultimately, or the fruit of godliness, godly character in your life, ultimately is not for you. You want to know how I know that? Because it doesn't always make your life better, does it? Sometimes behaving in a godly way, bearing the fruit of godliness, makes your life more challenging. In fact, Jesus even promised, you're going to be persecuted for the fruit you bear. So it can't ultimately be for us. But watch, watch how Dave answered this question last week. Watch this. And, and, and to be frank, and, and Dave, Dave's sitting over here. I don't, I'm, I don't want to polish the apple, but like, listen, I think this is one of the most brilliant and insightful and instructive things. If you learn nothing else about the nature of spiritual development and spiritual exercises in your life, this is what you've got to learn because this will radically change your picture. Is that, is that nice enough? Is that, you owe me five bucks for that? Is that what we decided in advance? Honestly, I listened to Dave last week as I pondered this sermon, which I always encourage you to do. Don't just listen, but like think about it throughout the week. This, this truth began to take root in my heart and in my mind in such a way that I was like, this is so, so good. Watch what, J watch what Dave did. This is how he answered this question. He took us to John 15, verse 16. Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you, we'll talk about that some other time, and appointed you that you should, say this word with me, go and bear fruit. That you should go and bear fruit. That's the key word, go. Why? Because if fruit stays on a branch, it rots, it falls off, it dies. It's good for nothing. In fact, it starts to stink a little bit, doesn't it? if fruit just rots on a branch. I can't tell you how many Christian people I know who have developed the fruit of godliness in their life, but they don't share it with anyone who doesn't know Jesus. It doesn't nourish anyone. So their fruit just sits there. And then it begins to rot, and it begins to die, and it falls off, and it even starts to stink a little bit, doesn't it? But fruit isn't meant to stay on the branch. It's meant to be picked eaten and enjoyed. It's meant to bring nourishment to people around you. S same goes for the fruit of godliness in your life, the fruit of godly character in your life. The fruit of Christ-like character in your life should bring nourishment and joy to those around you. The fruit of Christ-like character in your life should bring nourishment and joy to those around you. Your fruit does no one any good, including you, if it rots on the branch and dies. That's why Jesus says to what? Go. And bear fruit. Jesus talks about this concept all the time, all over his teachings. Did you know that? He says stuff like, you're the salt of the earth, be salty. 
You're the light of the world. Don't, don't light yourself and then, and then be, be on fire for Jesus and then, then cover it with a lampshade. No one does that. That's silly. He says stuff like this. He says, do good things in the world. Do good works so that people see them and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Let your fruit bring nourishment and joy to those around you. Let the fruit of godly character be what reverses the curse of sin in every person you encounter, every circumstance you find yourself in, every project you take on at work, every class you sign up for, every tip you leave a waiter, and every time you interact with your neighbor. And to do that, you have have to go. It can't stay here. It's got to go out there in order to bring nourishment and joy to a lost and dying world. Listen, you realize that there's not a person you lock eyes with in your life that doesn't matter a great deal to God? You've never locked eyes with somebody at work, somebody in a hall, someone downtown, somebody in the mall. Not one time that God is not crazy in love with. They have infinite worth and value in his eyes. He sent his son Jesus to die for them, to redeem and rescue them. And the fruit of godly character in your life will be what draws that person to Jesus, but they will never taste and see that the Lord is good unless you go. Dave said it this way last week with trellis fact number five. I like the way he put it. He said, the trellis exists to keep your fruit accessible to the world around you. The trellis exists to keep your fruit accessible to the world around you. Can I put a little finer point on that this week? Because I get, you know, the lead pastor gets bolder sometimes, right? Doesn't he, Dave, sometimes? So I'll put a little finer point on it this week. If you are engaging in spiritual habits in order to bear the fruit of godly character, but you don't regularly interact with anyone who doesn't know Jesus, you're missing the point. Like in all gentleness and grace, out of a heart of love for you as, as my church, as a congregation I'm called to, I love you so much. I'm going to say that again. I'm going to say it a little slower. If you are engaging in spiritual habits, exercises, practices like Bible study and prayer and community, fasting and doing justice, but you do not interact regularly with people who don't know Jesus, then you are simply missing the point. This is why we stand up every week and talk about Easter, inviting someone. This is why Dave stood up for 40 minutes last week and talked about bringing people in your home to show them hospitality. This is why our motto for this year is living the message of grace. It's all about going and bearing fruit that it may bring nourishment and joy to a lost and dying world. When we talk about those things, we're not doing it for our health. We're doing it because the fruit of godly character in our lives is meant to bring nourishment and joy to a lost and dying world. So here it is, ready? Go, bear fruit. Go, bear fruit. Not yet, I'm not done, but eventually. Go, bear fruit. It, are you with me? It's not meant to stay on the branch. The world we live in is lost and dying and hopeless without Jesus. And he's longing, longing to call them into a relationship with him and restore and redeem what's been lost. It's got to be about the fruit of godly character in your life. It can't stay here. You got to go and bear fruit. Good? 
Okay, now that, now, that now that I've preached Dave, Dave's content from last week, thanks, Dave, for writing the first 15 minutes of my sermon. Uh, let's talk about our final spiritual discipline. Final spiritual discipline, we've been doing this for seven weeks. We've incorporated one spiritual discipline, one uh, exercise, one habit each and every week. And today we're talking about the spiritual discipline of celebration. We've talked about Bible reading. We've talked about fasting. We've talked about prayer. Today we're talking about celebration. And my hunch is that most of you would not list the discipline of celebration among the spiritual disciplines. If you're asked to name spiritual disciplines, if you've been around church for any length of time, you would talk about Bible memory or Bible intake. You might talk about the discipline of fellowship or the discipline of silence or solitude if you're into the church fathers and things like that. But most of us would not list celebration among the disciplines, but celebration belongs on that list. And here's why. Because each week in our series, we've been talking about how our spiritual trellis supports growth such that we bear fruit. So check this out. Engaging in spiritual habits is not the fruit, is it? That's the trellis. The fruit is a result of the trellis, or the trellis supports growth and bearing fruit, but it isn't the fruit. So for example, we talked about the discipline of silence and solitude. The discipline of silence and solitude is part of the trellis, but it produces the fruit of peace, or it produces the fruit of a stillness of heart. Silence and solitude are part of the trellis. Peace is the fruit. So in the same way, we talked about fasting. Fasting produces the fruit of a hunger for God. We withdraw from something for a time in order to increase our appetite for God. So fasting is part of the trellis. Hunger for God is the fruit. Are you, are you with me? So celebration is part of the trellis. Celebration is a habit that we engage in. Celebration is a practice that we engage in that produces a fruit. So what's the fruit that celebration produces? Well, celebration produces joy. Celebration produces joy. And most of us think the other way around, don't we? We think that when we have joy, we celebrate as a result. But but the Bible says something a little bit different. It says when we celebrate, we experience joy as a result. So yes, celebration can be an outcome of joy, but joy is also an outcome of celebration. And joy is the second fruit of the Spirit that Paul mentions in Galatians 5, and celebration produces that, joy. I looked up celebration this week. Here are some synonyms, just so you know what we're talking about. Festival, party, merriment, if you're living in the... Middle Ages, apparently. Um, my favorite one was jamboree. Don't you? Don't you? You're like somebody like invites you to a jamboree. We're having a jamboree in our home. It's like, no, thank you. That's weird. But I like that. I think it's. I think it's cool. It makes me feel like I'm at Chuck E. Cheese Pizza or Disneyland or something, right? Yeah, somebody's like, oh, that's awesome. Yeah, jamboree, right? Celebration. And when we engage in the spiritual discipline of, of, of celebration, when we engage in the spiritual discipline of merriment, when we engage in the spiritual discipline of festival or party or jamboree, it produces the fruit of joy in our lives. And joy is fantastic because joy is not like happiness. Happiness is completely dependent upon circumstances. Happiness needs the food of circumstances to exist, but happiness is never satisfied. I don't know if you realize that. Happiness always needs more. Happiness, the happy, ha, who? (laughs) 
like, you know, like I'm having this inner, inner monologue right now, which my wife always says, don't share your inner monologue, especially in public. But um, I'm having this inner monologue right now. Should I try that again? You know, and my inner, my in, the inner voice just keeps going, no, you should not try that again because it is going to derail again. Let me try it. Happiness's appetite is never satiated. <laughs> I did it. Thank you very much. I'll be here all week. Happiness always needs more. It ha- happiness needs you to create circumstances in your life in order to fuel its fire. Joy is different. Joy transcends circumstances. Joy is a character trait. It's not a circumstantial emotion. Joy is a deep, abiding, spiritual gladness that is evident to those around you. And because joy transcends circumstances, joy can find gladness even in the smallest things. Check this out. Now, this is, this is, this is amazing. Joy can actually engender delight, pleasure, and gladness regardless of circumstances. So watch this. Joy can create delight and gladness where there wasn't delight and gladness before. Joy doesn't need to be fed by those circumstances. On the contrary, joy actually feeds those circumstances with delight and gladness, not so delightful circumstances. And celebration, when we program that, when we incorporate that as part of our regular discipline and rule of life, it creates joy. I want to help us wrap our mind a little bit more around joy this morning and, and, and understand where we're headed here when we incorporate celebration into our rule of life and what that might do in terms of our character. And in order to um, help us understand that this morning, I want to tell you a story about my friend Solomon. Uh, Solomon's up here on the screen. This is Solomon. Um, some of you have heard Solomon's story before. Some of you have even met Solomon because he's been here uh, a few times. And for those of you who haven't heard Solomon's story, here's the, here's the background. Uh, my wife Amy and I received a phone call about two and a half years ago, about six weeks after we moved here, actually. And one of our dearest friends in the world told us about a young boy in Uganda named Solomon who had a disease called bladder extrophy. Some of you may know what that is. For those of you who don't, bladder extrophy is a very rare and life-threatening disease in which an infant is born with several of their internal organs on the outside of the abdomen. So Solomon was born with a number of his internal organs exposed on the outside of his abdomen. And get this, he lived for three years that way in Uganda. Colostomy bag, unable to do what other kids could do, constant pain, constant fear of infection. Every day, even several times a day, his mom would take the bandages off of his exposed internal organs, clean them, and redress those organs constant fear of being ostracized from his community, constant fear of death, in fact. Before he was three years old, Solomon had already had multiple life-saving surgeries. When Amy and I met Solomon, uh, Toronto Sick Kids downtown had just graciously agreed to do a very complex and very expensive surgery to repair Solomon's abdomen uh, for free. So Amy and I were waiting at the airport for Solomon and his mother, Mary, to get off the plane. We had never met them before. Uh, Neither of them had ever flown before. They had only been outside of Uganda to go to Kenya for Solomon to get one of those life-saving surgeries. During their 30-plus hour flight from Uganda to Toronto, Solomon's colostomy bag had filled up and began to leak. He was in pain. He was exhausted. He didn't smell great. 
He was in a strange new place. He knew he was coming here for a surgery, and he was already familiar with how painful surgeries are. So I expected that I would see a terrified young boy clinging to his mother in the Toronto airport. My expectations were not met. I watched Solomon dance off the plane and down the thing and through the airport. He hopped, he skipped, his mom ran after him. It was great. (laughs) He had a deep abiding spiritual gladness that transcended circumstances that was evident to everyone in Terminal 1. A week or so later, Solomon would go in for a pre-op appointment. That picture's up here on the screen. That's me and Solomon. Uh, The next one's of his pre-op appointment. He's wearing my hat that day. Uh, Amy and I went in and uh, hung out with him during his pre-op appointment. Uh, And then Solomon, a few days later, would have his surgery. The first day after Solomon's surgery, Amy and I went to visit him in the hospital. We were there the entire time for the 16-hour surgery, went home and slept and came back the next day. And again, I expected I would see a frightened, terrified, sedated young boy. But again, my expectations were not met. Look up here on the screen. Next picture. There you go. That's the first day after Solomon's surgery. This is him in his little hospital gown and booties. Uh, This is Solomon, by the way. This is me. I don't know if you are able to tell the difference. And, and I wish you could see the face on the other end of this tube in this little play place down at Toronto Sick Kids. Uh, just, j- just so you know, the face looked a lot like this. That's what I saw the day after his surgery. He was in physical pain. He was even a bit sedated. But Solomon's deep, abiding spiritual happiness was evident to everyone in the hospital, just as it was evident to everyone in Terminal 1. Last Solomon story, and then I want to talk about us. I want to talk about how this applies to you and me. Uh, Canada Day rolled around, and these guys were still in town because Solomon um, was still rehabilitating after his surgery. And that night on Canada Day, uh, uh, Mary and Solomon were planning to come up to our house for dinner. And so uh, they were already up at the house, and I left work here, and I headed down Steeles towards the 404 to, to, to go north. And uh, I passed on Canada Day, I, I passed a fireworks stand. You know, at Canada Day, they, they build the tents and they sell all the fireworks, right? So I thought to myself, this little boy has probably never seen fireworks before. And I feel like I should change that. So I did. So I go in this fireworks stand and I tell this guy Solomon's entire story. Like, this boy's from Uganda and bladder extrophy. He's three years old. He's just had a surgery. Like, he does not need big fireworks, right? He needs simple, colorful, and fun, okay? Bubbles, and whatever the next level is from bubbles, that's what Solomon needs, right? He needs something very, and this guy literally, and I quote, goes, I got just the thing. I know just the thing. So I bought these fireworks and walked out. Now, I'm a kid at heart, so I'm getting jacked on fireworks, right? Like, I'm excited about fireworks at this point. So I get in my car, and by myself, I'm not kidding, I'm on the way home just chanting, fireworks, fireworks, because I'm stoked, right? So I get home, I pull up to the house, I come in, and I open the door, the side door. Mary's already cooking, Solomon's playing in the house, and I start chanting, fireworks, fireworks. And Amy, I I remember her exact words were, Oh, what have you done? (laughs) 
because she knew exactly what I, you know, I have got fireworks, you know. So I'm chanting the whole time into the evening, throughout dinner, and it gets dark late that time of year. We had to wait till it got dark, and I'm chanting the whole time, fireworks, fireworks. But Solomon never responds. He never responds. You know why? Because he has no idea what he's about to experience. He's never seen fireworks before. He, he doesn't even know what that word is. So it gets dark, and we walk outside. I follow this fireworks stand guy, you know, who I'm sure is safety certified. I, I follow his instructions to a T. You know, turn a cinder block on its side, drop it in, light the fuse. It'll be great, right? So I do the thing, and I light it, and I walk away and back up. When the fuse on this firework burnt down, what was supposed to have been simple, colorful, and fun goes off like a hydrogen bomb in my yard. I'm not kidding. It's like 50 meters in the air. It's huge and loud and terrifying. Like car alarms are going off, and I'm afraid that like somebody's going to call the police, you know, that the house next to us has exploded. I look at Solomon's mom, and she's terrified. She's never seen, you know, fireworks before. Amy is terrified and mad, rightfully so, because this was my choice. My dog about lost her lunch. I mean, it was just, it was a bad, bad scene. It was absolutely chaos. But my first concern is for who? Solomon. I did this for him. You know, I wanted it to be fun for him. I thought, how is this young boy going to feel? Would, would fireworks prove to be the end of Solomon's seemingly inexhaustible joy? I looked over at him when the fireworks were over, and he was, he was stunned. <laughs> his jaw was on the floor. His eyes were as big as golf balls. He looked terrified. The deafening silence seemed like it would never end. And I began to feel the heavy weight of a really bad choice on my shoulders. You ever felt that before? So just then, a still, small voice broke through the silence. It was the voice of a three-year-old Ugandan boy. And the voice said, Fireworks. 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 Solomon began to dance and chant in my yard. Then I began to dance and chant with him while Amy and Mary were holding one another. <laughs> Our voice is now chanting fireworks in unison, a three-year-old boy and a 36-year-old boy celebrating together. We convinced Amy and Mary to let us light one more, just one. They wouldn't let us do any more than that. I still have four in my garage, by the way, if you want to come by. So I had a bunch, you know, and Amy's like, no, that's it. One more. That's all. The next morning, Mary called, uh, Mary called our house. Uh, Solomon inadvertently woke her up at 2 a.m. because he was having a dream in the middle of the night. Can you uh, guess what he was chanting in his dream? <laughs> Fireworks. I talked to Solomon this week, actually. Uh, he was at the beach enjoying the day. You know, hi, Uncle Luke, Auntie Amy. I am at the beach. Then I hear, fireworks. <laughs> See, that's joy. That's joy. It finds glee in the small things. It, it transcends circumstances, even the most difficult circumstances. It's, it's evident to those around us. But joy is far more than a great character trait. Did you know that joy is at the very heart of God? 
Do you know that, that God is the most joyful being in the universe? And some of us might feel a little bit even uncomfortable with this perception of God, but you know that God and Solomon are a lot more alike than we'd like to think? You know, there's some temporary states of being, some temporary dispositions that God experiences. God is angry towards sin, but that's not going to last forever. Uh, Jesus experienced sorrow and difficulty on this earth. He was a man acquainted with grief, but that's not going to last forever. And those things did not exist before sin entered the world. But joy now, joy is God's eternal disposition. God's grand redemptive story actually begins and ends with joy. In Genesis chapter 1, after every creative act, God announced it was good. That Hebrew word for good is tov, and it means beautiful, pleasing, or perfect. So it was good was an expression of God's never-ending joy. It's, it's, it's as if after every creative work, God said, fireworks, stars, fireworks, let there be light, fireworks, whales, fireworks, Cats. Mm. (laughs) And then the crown jewel of his creation, humanity, who he loves so much and breathed the breath of life into us. Fireworks. God might have even danced and hopped a little bit. That's how God's story begins. God, the most joyful being in the universe, letting his eternal, inexhaustible joy spill out onto the canvas of creation. But then sin entered the picture, and joy got squashed. Humanity began to seek out happiness rather than joy. But remember, happiness is fed by circumstances, and its appetite is insatiable. So humanity desired to become more like God, so it built a tower to its own glory, or it engaged in sexual deviance, or it wielded power over one another, or it pursued wealth. And maybe these things made us happy for a time, but they did not last. They didn't engender joy. And all the while, God knew what we really needed was joy. So when he established his covenant community, his family, he prescribed, commanded, and programmed regular disciplined moments, days, and seasons of celebration in order to create rhythms that engender and produce joy. I'm going to say that again because it's critical. When God established his covenant community, his family in the Old Testament, he prescribed, commanded, regulated, programmed regular disciplined moments, days, and seasons of celebration in order to create, engender, and produce joy. Why? Because God knows that celebration produces joy. And that's what we need. Every 50 years, the nation of Israel would celebrate the year of Jubilee. In the year of Jubilee, all debts were forgiven. Everybody got the year off. The party lasted all year long. We're going to do that next year here. We're all taking the year off, by the way, at Bayview Glen, so invite your friends. No, that's, that's not true. I can't do that. Every year they had Passover. They celebrated God's redemption. 
The Feast of First Fruits and the Feast of Weeks were celebrations of God's provision that bookended the harvest. The Feast of Trumpets was a celebration to kick off the year. During the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths, uh, God's people celebrated and looked forward to God's ultimate rule and reign on the earth. These are just a few examples of the places where God programmed regular rhythms of celebration into the life of his covenant community. The people of God were commanded to rejoice, celebrate, let loose, and party. It was a time to figuratively chant, fire works for all that God had done. And rather than an insatiable appetite for happiness, their celebrating before the Lord stoked within God's people a deep abiding spiritual gladness that was evident to everyone around them. Joy. This is the spiritual discipline of celebration. It's partying before the Lord. It's setting aside specific days, times, weeks, moments throughout your day to celebrate such that it produces joy. And remember that joy defines the heart of our God. So how do we do it? How do we do it? How do we program within our lives regular habits of celebration. I'm going to give you 20 suggestions today. 20. Some of you are thinking, Luke, I come here every week. You're giving us 20 suggestions. I'm going to be late for my 2.30 appointment. You're not. So I'm going to go through them quick. You ready? These are just a few that I jotted down. Don't jot these down. You're not going to have time to do it. These are just a few things that I jotted down, ways that you can program celebration into your life. Cook a great meal and enjoy it with friends. Dave talked about hospitality last week. Do that. I'm not, a, I'm not a guy who likes to make food. I make reservations really well. Um, so if, if, if you don't need to cook the friend, with friends, you can go out to dinner. Just go celebrate. Just celebrate. Uh, wear funky socks. You know, something fun like that. I got, I got socks with frogs on them. I got, I got socks with stars on them. I got, I got socks with all kinds of stuff on them. Because every now and then I celebrate. Just, just my ankles celebrate, though. Dress up for no reason. You ever do that? Just dress up for no reason, just to celebrate. Listen to a killer guitar solo or classical music or whatever makes you feel like celebrating. Throw a party in your neighborhood. Here's, here's one. Take a long lunch and go bowl a few frames. Just go bowling at lunch. There's a couple people in here that are like, yes, Lord, yes. Yes, I, that one, I can, I can incorporate that into my rule of life. Yeah, for sure. Uh, enjoy a glass of wine, if you can do so responsibly and in moderation, by the way, and if you're not convicted about that. Some of you, wine is not your choice celebratory beverage. My personal choice celebratory beverage is whole milk. I love whole milk. If, if my wife would let me drink half and half, I would. In fact, my, my birthday is Friday. Yeah, thanks, by the way. I'm getting old. So my birthday is Friday, and... Um, and I think I might go buy half and half and just celebrate on my birthday with half and half. It's going to be great. I'm excited. Here's one. Here's one. Uh, when you go out to dinner, order a dessert, but don't eat it. Take it to go and eat it for breakfast the next day. Okay? <laughs> buy coffee for the person behind you at Starbucks, and when they ask you why you did it, say, hey, today's March 20th. How many times a year does that come? Once. Let's celebrate. Okay? I'll buy you coffee. Stop on the way home from work. Get your kids an ice cream cake for no reason. Make snow angels. Watch YouTube videos of cats getting scared. Trust me, it's really worth it. It's great. 
Make brownies for your neighbor. Sing, dance, decorate your office with pictures of people that you love doing things that they love to do. How about this one? This is a good one to celebrate. Fast from negativity. I have a, yeah, somebody, whoa. I have a, I have a friend that's, that's, done this, uh, that's done this recently. He, he's, he's chosen to fast from negativity. He's like, I'm just, gonna, I'm just gonna avoid being negative altogether. I actually called him this week. I said, how's your negativity fast going? He said, it's really going poorly. I said, well, you just broke it. Right there, you broke it because you were negative. He chose to fast from, from negativity this year. Um, his wife's not 40 yet. She's uh, been undergoing cancer treatment. Uh, he's a partner in a, uh, in, a, in, a, in a very successful business. They got sued this year. Um, he put a deck in his house this year and accidentally cut off the hot water supply to his home and f- four or five of his neighbors' homes. Um, so on, on conference championship Sunday in January, he was supposed to come up to my house to watch the game. I called and I said, hey, where are you? He said, I'm at home. I'm digging up my backyard. I've got to remove this, you know, this pillar that we put in to build this deck. And so uh, we were glad that he found the problem right away and got it fixed. And so I called him about two weeks later. I said, how is it? Is everything fixed? And he said, yeah, the only unfortunate part is uh, yesterday a, a raccoon crawled up underneath my deck and died. And now the thing is starting to stink. And so he literally had to put a plastic garbage bag on his hands and crawl up into his deck and remove this raccoon. So if you choose to incorporate celebration in your life via a negativity fast, know that it's that kind of stuff that's probably coming your way. But I would highly encourage that you do it. Just say, you know what? I'm not going to be a Debbie Downer anymore. I'm not. I'm not. I'm just not going to get involved in that stuff anymore. God's blessed me beyond comprehension, far beyond what I could ask or imagine. If he gave me a blank slate and said, you make up anything you want for your life, I could not come up with this. So I'm going to take a fast from negativity in order to incorporate celebration into my regular rule of life. Here's another good one. Next time you get on an elevator, hand out name tags. Welcome to the elevator. Welcome, welcome. Please put your name so everybody knows we're named. We can celebrate here on the elevator. This summer, light off some fireworks. Join me in Solomon. Don't forget to chant, by the way. Make programmed celebration, regular habitual celebration, a part of your rule of life, and watch the fruit of joy grow as a result. I promised to give you 20 things that you could do to incorporate celebration into your rule of life, but if you are counting, I've only given you 20, or I've only given you 19, that's because we're about to do number 20. The band is going to come back up and lead us as we sing a couple songs in celebratory response, but as we do that, I want you to know that Palm Sunday isn't just about Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. It's about you and I getting a glimpse, just a peek. It's an appetizer, if you will, for God's promised eternal celebration called the Wedding Supper of the Lamb. In fact, look back at the instructions that God gave his people for one of those Old Testament celebrations. It's up here on the screen. It's called the Feast of Tabernacles. Hey, Roy, thanks for serving today, bud. You guys sound good. Look up here. This is a Feast of Tabernacles. On the 15th day of the seventh month, when you've gathered the produce of the land, you shall do what? 
celebrate the feast of the Lord seven days, and you shall take on the first day with fruit with the fruit of splendid trees, branches of what? Say that with me. Palm trees. Oh my gosh, you know where I'm going. And boughs of leafy trees and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. You shall what? Celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It is a statute forever throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. So palm fronds became a critical part of the Feast of Tabernacles, which was a celebration of God's coming kingdom. Over 900 years later, a prophet named Zechariah would write this of the coming Messiah. Rejoice, there it is, greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous. And having salvation is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. 500 years later, after Zechariah wrote... 1,400 to 2,000 years after the Feast of Tabernacles was, was established in Leviticus, Matthew would record Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. It was a fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles, a sign of God's coming kingdom, and a fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy. Matthew writes this. When they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, that's Zechariah, saying what we just read. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put their cloaks on it, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from palm trees, by the way, and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. The first Palm Sunday. But that first Palm Sunday, that first triumphal entry was a glimpse, it was a taste, it was an appetizer meant to point us toward the most glorious celebration of all when a great number that no a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, stands before the throne and the Lamb, clothed in white robes with what? Say this with me, palm branches in their hands. And crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So today is not really just about that first Palm Sunday. In fact, that first Palm Sunday wasn't just about that first Palm Sunday. Jesus and Jerusalem 2,000 years ago and right now today, it's all about a picture, a glimpse of what's on the horizon. We engage together as a body of believers this Sunday in preemptive celebration, knowing that one day Jesus' triumphal entry will be a triumphal re-entry onto this planet to claim those who are his own, to take us home, to wipe every tear away, no more dying, no more bladder extrophy, no more sin, no more shame, no more suffering, and on that day will be the real celebration, the wedding supper of the Lamb. 
there will be celebration, joy unspeakable, and yes, indeed, fireworks. So we begin today with celebratory worship with our eyes lifted towards that day. We lift our voices together and join the throngs that sing Hosanna, that God saves. If you're not a singer today, I ask you to just let that go and sing. If you're not a hand raiser today, I just ask you to let that go and raise your hand. Turn our eyes and our voices and our hearts towards this heart of celebration and rejoicing before the Lord for all He is and all He's done. Let's stand together and sing.